This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. Max Bergman is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focuses on European security and U.S.-Russia policy. Previously, he served in the U.S. Department of State, where he focused on political military affairs, arms control, and international security. He was also speechwriter to Secretary of State John Kerry. A graduate of LSC, Max joined the show for a chinwag about foreign interference in democracy, what the Mueller report uncovered about the U.S. 2016 elections, whether the Congress should impeach the U.S. president, how Russia interfered in the Brexit referendum, and how democracies can fight back against hostile actors. Now, if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you rate and review us on social media and iTunes. It really, really helps. Enjoy the episode. So, Max, welcome to Diplomates. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm well. And look, uh, just reference we're doing this via the miracle of the internet. Uh, I think it's about the end of the day in DC and the start of the day here in Australia. So, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And so, I was thinking about the best place to start. Now, your you know, your background is uh, foreign interference. Uh, you you have know, background in the US State Department and you're sort of working uh, in foreign interference at the Center for American Progress. I suppose, firstly, before we get into the specifics, why does foreign interference matter at all? Why would we all be concerned about this? Well, I think it, I think it matters even more now than it has in the past. And it's partly because of how our politics work now. It's how people get their information, um, how the Internet has sort of transformed people's lives, has made, uh, I think, modern societies particularly vulnerable or uh, to foreign interference in a way that wasn't really the case, I think, in previous eras, uh, at least not to the same degree, partly because now uh, it's very easy to reach people, to connect with people, to um, to uh, influence different segments of the population. Um, and so the way foreign governments are interfering, I think, is particularly important because for our democratic politics, both in Australia and the United States and everywhere there's a, a democratic country, it's important that that sort of be an internal conversation. Now, it's always going to be influenced in some ways by the broader world, by broader dynamics. But when you start having foreign governments saying, hey, we're going to deliberately get involved and, and find a way to tip the balance, to you know, put our thumb in the scale in a particular direction – well, you start sort of undermining the very legitimacy of democratic politics and the way we live now in with this sort of modern network societies. It's increasingly easy and available to foreign countries to try to put their thumb on the scale. And so I think it's a particularly pernicious threat to open societies, to open liberal democratic uh, uh, countries where our openness is our bit great advantage. And what these foreign governments are trying to do is really undermine that and take advantage of it. And so I think that it's a it's a real it's a real worry it's a real threat and a real concern and something that all democratic societies now really have to pay attention to. And of course, um, you know the most famous example. There are other examples we get into. The most famous example that's been debated lately is the the twenty sixteen U.S. presidential election and the interference from the Russians. Now, before we get into uh, the ins and outs of the Mueller report and the political dimension to all this, what do we know specifically? What are the sort of uncontested facts in this space? Well, so there's a lot, actually, of uncontested facts. And Mueller's, you know, 400-plus page report, uh, I think most of that, almost all of that is largely uncontested. But I think when it comes to the foreign interference dimension in particular, now, I think the way the Mueller report has been interpreted, I think particularly outside of America, sort of abroad, is, well, it didn't quite have this smoking gun to sort of nail Trump. And I don't actually think that's quite true. But what I think the more important part of the Mueller report for foreign countries, for foreign democracies, is the first sort of 50 some odd pages where he outlines a Russian conspiracy against the United States. We forget that Mueller has brought all these criminal charges. And what Mueller effectively identifies in volume one in the first 50 pages are two uh, distinct Russian lines of effort to influence uh, the American politics. And they were quite successful in 2016. And the first line of effort was through social media, through the creation of uh, the Internet Research Agency. This is sort of a, a pseudo-private, oligarch-funded um, uh, operation in St. Petersburg. And what does it do? It sort of was 
uh, trying to influence American uh, the political discussion uh, on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter. This is where we hear about the troll farms, the bots, which are automated accounts. And what the Russians effectively figured out is how to uh, game the American debate, how to game uh, the social media companies uh, by, you know, if you if if you amplify content, if everyone's retweeting the same thing, if you create automated bots that is all retweeting racist content, suddenly that racist content gets amplified. Lots of people are, then look at it, it gets promoted. And so that was one major line of effort where the Russians were trying to interfere both to sow discord in American politics, basically amplify our racial divisions, uh, amplify uh, uh, aspects of American political debate that they wanted to promote. Um, and then the other aspect was to simply promote Donald Trump. There's a lot of Russian accounts that were promoting Donald Trump. And this was not sort of a Mickey Mouse sized operation. Um, it was uh, had roughly 80 people devoted just to the United States, just to the 2016 election with a multi-million dollar budget. Now, if you look at the, the Clinton campaign's digital operation, this is the presidential campaign of Hillary Clinton, she had roughly 80 people devoted to digital. So you see uh, what is in effect a Russian online campaign, digital campaign, devoted to influencing American politics. And probably it's not going to be as effective as the Clinton digital campaign. But on the other hand, this is a campaign on the Russian side, willing to sort of say things that that normal political campaigns wouldn't do, push certain messages, uh, attack candidates in ways that 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 people that were uh, uh, you know had to be true to who they were, had to represent themselves, wouldn't say. And so the second line of effort. So the first line is this social media campaign that Mueller outlined. The second line of effort is the hacking. Now this is basic, you know, intelligence operations. This is. You know, a Russian military intelligence unit in the GR within the Russian GRU uh, that was devoted not to hacking the State Department or hacking a diploma, diplomat's phone, but to hacking an actual political campaign and hacking the personal email account of uh, John Podesta, who is the co-founder of, of Center for American Progress, who I should disclose that I place that I work at, but also um, penetrating the Democratic Party, which they were able to successfully do, um, and. So this was, you know, when we think about political campaigns, what political campaigns, especially in the American context, are basically like small startup companies that suddenly just, you know, balloon overnight and have all these young 20-somethings working for them. Um, and so they're quite actually easy in some ways to penetrate or, or should be. Actually, the Clinton campaign took cybersecurity incredibly ser seriously. So the, the Clinton campaign actually wasn't breached. It was a personal email account of Podesta, and it was the Democratic Party. But so the Russians broke in, stole tens of thousands of emails from both the Democratic Party and from John Podesta. And not only that, they also stole a lot of stuff, like their field operations research, their, basically their battle plans for the campaign. Um, and we don't know what they did with, the, with that. We know that they released the emails in two different waves through WikiLeaks, which was uh, uh, an online transparency organization um, uh, that was felt no uh, bones about releasing content that was given to them by Russian Intel, and released that in right before the Democratic Convention in July, which was the first release, and then the second release, which came in October, was just sort of the October surprise of uh, of the election, um, and so that had a huge impact on the race in, in, in a race that was so close, there's no doubt that when you look at the impact, uh, uh of both those lines of effort, it, it definitely, uh, swung the election, tilted the election, um, in Donald Trump's favor. So that's in the Mueller report. And I think it's something that all countries, all Democrat, democratic societies should look at those, especially the first 50 pages to kind of learn about, Hey, if this could happen in the United States. How could, could this also happen here in our country? And uh, I suppose I should apologise on behalf of Australian people for the role that uh, Julian Assange played in WikiLeaks uh, yeah. there, but uh, um, we won't we won't get into that too much. But look, that was a really good rundown of a four hundred page report and a two year investigation. But I think you're right. One of the things that's fascinating to me is that you're right that this sort of question of a smoking gun that if uh, Moore wasn't able to find a recording between Vladimir Putin and um, either Donald Trump himself or someone in the Trump organisation. Uh, campaign that, that this was all going to be a, a you know a, a farce of an investigation that it wasn't going to be that 
One of the things I think it'd be good for you to unpack would be all the people in the Trump campaign that worked in the campaign that have since been indicted, arrested, charged, um, and uh, in some cases in prison. So if you could give us a, maybe a, a quick rundown of the rap sheet, I think that'd be interesting. Yeah, no, sure. So, you know, I, this was the Mueller investigation uh, was probably the most successful uh, special counsel investigation that we've ever had in the United States. Um, and the report that he re- produced is the most damning thing ever written, ever official, most damning official document ever written about a president of the United States. And as you mentioned, you know, Mueller uh, has has led to guilt. The Mueller investigation has led to guilty pleas of Donald Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, his deputy campaign chairman, uh, Rick Gates, his personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, his first national security advisor, Michael Flynn, uh, as well as a foreign policy advisor, a guy named George Papadopoulos. It has produced a tremendous amount of indictments and charges also against Russians and Russian-affiliated individuals. So this was an investigation that that found a lot of lawbreaking, found a lot of crime. I think when it comes to Donald Trump, what we sort of see here is, in fact, I think a classic counterintelligence investigation, that what Mueller found was a lot of smoking guns. What he didn't find was Donald Trump pulling the trigger. And when we think about famous sort of, uh, you know, if we go back to sort of the Cold War era, post-Cold War era, where the U.S. was busting a lot of uh, Russian or KGB uh, agents that were embedded in the CIA or the FBI. We have the famous Aldrich James case and the famous Robert Hansen case. What happened in both of those, the FBI caught them at the dead drop, right? They got them in the act of committing this crime. In this case, Mueller was, conduct- Mueller was only appointed to investigate a year after the election, almost. Uh, and what seems pretty clear is the FBI was sort of very slow on the uptake uh, in terms of Russian interference during the actual election. Some of this was actually the fault of the Obama administration, not being super uh, focused on the threat of Russian interference at the time. It sort of caught everyone off guard. Um, And so that gave people a lot of time to delete messages, to delete emails, to uh, erase things on their phone, to coordinate stories. And so what we see in the volume two of the Mueller report is the crime, is the crime that implicates the president of the United States, is obstruction of justice. And we have the famous sort of story here in the U.S. of, uh, of Al Capone who was this you know, famous mobster during the Prohibition era in the 1920s. And how did Al Capone go down? Well, of tax evasion. Now, why did no no one says that Al Capone wasn't this famed mobster? They, you know, he was avoiding taxes because he was this famed mobster. Um, but it was the tax evasion that got him. And I think what we see here is Robert Mueller. The reason why there's 198 pages of Volume One uh, devoted to Trump's Russian contacts, the Russian contacts be, uh, with uh, Donald Trump and the Trump campaign. Uh, with Russia is because Mueller was describing a story, a story of something that Donald Trump wanted to uh, hide, wanted to conceal, wanted to obstruct from the investigators that were looking into it. And I think in some cases, Donald Trump was successful, but there's also a lot of smoking guns and maybe I'll just run through them uh, quickly. You know, we one, they have the campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, meeting with uh, someone who the FBI believes is a Russian intelligence agent. But it's not only the FBI, it's also Paul Manafort, or it's also Paul Manafort and his deputy also believe this individual, Konstantin Kalimnik, is connected to Russian intelligence. And they meet with him on August 2nd in the midst of this campaign. And throughout the election, they're sharing polling data, uh, internal polling data from the campaign. Now, this is sort of the crown jewels of the Trump campaign. This is confidential information about where they're uh, uh, how they're polling voters, the messages they're looking to push, and they also share the battle, the the campaign battle plan, the states that they're looking to focus on. And they're sharing it with Konstantin Kalimnik, who they know is sharing it with Oleg Deripaska, who's this Putin-connected oligarch uh, who's been sanctioned by the United States. Um, and why do they want it shared with Deripaska? I think it's fairly clear that they knew Deripaska was sharing that with the Kremlin more broadly. So we have a very neat chain of events where Russian, you know, to Russian intel uh, or from the Trump campaign to Russian intel with very few actors in between. Now, Moore identified all of that. Now, his problem was 
Paul Manafort, who was a cooperating witness, decided to not cooperate about why he was providing that information to Konstantin Kalimnik. And so Mueller withdrew the cooperation agreement. Manafort's now going to jail for a very long time. And the question is, why did Manafort not want to disclose that information? And I think the conclusion is is pretty clear. It's because he was sharing that information with the intent that it was going to get to the Russian government. Now, there's other examples of Donald Trump's advanced knowledge and no, uh, awareness of the WikiLeaks releases. In fact, in not only that, instructing his campaign to establish a back channel to WikiLeaks, knowing that WikiLeaks was getting the content for the releases from Russian intel. And why did they know that? And this is the other bombshell, because the Trump campaign was told about it. The Trump campaign was informed by this Maltese professor, uh, uh, Joseph Missoud, uh, in London, that they that the Russians had quote dirt on Hillary Clinton, that they had thousands of emails. And this was in uh, this was in in April and May, before it was known to the world. So what we see are all these sort of uh, uh, this awareness on the part of the Trump campaign about what the Russians are doing, this willingness to share. Uh, internal Trump campaign uh, data and information that would be very useful to the Russian campaign that they were running that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and so Trump's awareness of this crime that Russia was doing and his willingness to say, go out, collude, get, connect, meet with the Russians, they, the Trump campaign effectively ran toward the crime. And that's what Moore outlines. Now, he says, I didn't get, I wasn't able to find any tangible agreement, tacit or express, that could amount to a conspiracy between the Russian efforts and the Trump efforts. But he did find a lot of collusion, and then he found a lot of obstruction of justice in the volume two. And so oh, I'm keen to, to turn to, I suppose, where this goes from here. But just going back a step, you, you talk yeah. about, um, I mean, you've outlined a very concerning and alarming series of facts. But the concerning part, I think, is some of this was known. Um, the Obama administration certainly knew. Um, the FBI had some concerns. Why was there no red flag going up before the election? Why was why was this sort of in effect sat on, um, and we didn't hear about it until after the fact? So I, I think I think there's a, a, a few reasons, and it's a great question. I think one, um, I think everyone was just caught off guard that you know we're the United States of America. No one messes with our internal democratic politics. It's just not, not a threat that we sort of expected or anticipated, partly because, you know, we're, we can deter uh, foreign actors from doing that by the very nature of us being the world's you know, largest superpower. Um, and so I think there was a little bit of just not lack of imagination. And that occurs in sort of every um, in major intelligence failure, whether it's 9-11, whether it's Pearl Harbor, of just not anticipating how a foreign actor would actually uh, go about attacking you. Now, initially, when the DNC, the Democratic Party, was uh, hacked, and it became known in on June 14, 2016, it was actually reported in the Washington Post that day, the initial response from the U.S. government or thought process was that, well, you know, this has happened before. You know, it's not unusual for foreign countries to want to hack a political party or, you know, political campaign. Barack Obama's campaign was hacked by the Chinese in 2008. Lots of Washington think tanks are hacked all the time by China, by Russia. And so it was sort of viewed as this was traditional intelligence gathering. This wasn't about influencing events. It was about, you know, the Russians kind of wanted to know where the Clinton campaign may be going or the Democratic Party may be going on certain issues. And well, you could very quickly you know, scratch the surface there and say, well, that didn't quite add up by, based on what they were doing. You know, I think that was the, the, the basic sense at the time. Now, that all changed on uh, July 22nd when uh, the Russians through WikiLeaks released the DNC emails right before the Democratic Convention. This was a huge deal. This resulted in the resignation of the head of the Democratic Party, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, at the time. It led to massive rift between the Clinton, uh, Clinton and, and Bernie supporters. And so suddenly at that moment, there's a realization in the U.S. government that they have a problem. It's after this point where the FBI who sort of been slow on the uptake of conducting counterintelligence investigation, um, gets information from, uh, from a, a good Australian uh, uh, diplomat in London who had actually had uh, drinks with George Papadopoulos uh, uh, in early May and, found, and where Papadopoulos, who is a foreign policy advisor to Trump, 
told him that the Russians had this dirt and were going to release it. Uh, this information is passed to the FBI. The FBI opens a counterintelligence investigation. Donald Trump's stance during the election was problematic because he was saying, dismissing the notion that Russia was involved. It meant that if President Obama got involved and said the Russians were doing this, they were worried it would be seen as partisan. It would be worried it'd be seen as tipping the scale on behalf of Hillary Clinton. And so what we saw in September and October was the Obama White House going to Hillary, uh, going to the Republicans in Congress, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, who were the uh, two leaders in Congress, and saying, hey, let's issue a bipartisan statement. And both of them uh, turned it down and said, no, we think this would be, be partisan. And so what we saw is actually a breakdown, I think, in, in uh, it wasn't just a failing on the Obama administration, it was also a failing on the behalf of the Republican Party. We have political parties to act as guardrails for our democracy, and here is a Republican Party failing to step up. Now, that being said, there's no doubt the Obama administration's response was way too weak, was way too timid. They should have uh, gone out and spoke out more loudly than they did. When they did try to speak out, um, there was, well, there's two things that happened. One, they tried to sort of pick up the red phone and tell the Russians, you know, the red phone that was used during the Cold War to avert a nuclear crisis. This was actually picked up and where John Brennan, the head of the CIA, told his counterpart, cut it out. We know you're doing this. And Obama told Putin at a G20 summit, I believe in China in September, the same thing. The second thing that happened was they decided to go public. And October 7th, around noon, this is a Friday, uh, they released from, uh, from the head of the Department of Homeland Security, the head of the uh, director of national intelligence, a statement about Russian interference. Then a few hours later, the biggest bombshell of the election happens, which is Trump's Access Hollywood tape uh, comes out. And this is where Donald Trump is basically bragging about uh, committing sexual assault on, on a hot mic. And then 29 minutes after that tape is released, we have this good Australian Julian Assange at WikiLeaks releasing at 4.32 p.m. on a Friday on October 7th, uh, the John Podesta emails. And so suddenly announcing to the public that, yes, Russia was doing this, just got completely buried in the news cycle and no one paid any attention. Um, so I think what we have is a failure of imagination, uh, slow in how to respond and how to react being hamstrung by Republicans, and then finally acting, and then it getting consumed in sort of the broader news environment. Sorry, that's a pretty long answer to uh, a simple question. But, it, you know, I think any, anyone in the Obama administration who says they would do it exactly the same as they did it is lying. I think everyone looks back and, and, and also has the assumption, the, the last thing I should say is everyone assumed she was going to win. So it's easier not to do something. It's always easier not to act than to act, and especially when you could say, well, she's going to win anyway. Well, they, they certainly weren't alone um, in predicting that Hillary was going to win. I was certainly on board with that prediction as well. So uh, I think um, I think uh, uh, thank you for that really, uh, really sort of concise answer. So I suppose you sort of touched on a bit of the politics there, and I think it's a good way, time to, you know, because this has now become political. We've had a very yeah. essentially a national security discussion, but there's a political dimension to this. Um, the Mueller report itself has become politicised. Uh, so I'm curious, curious in your take on, I mean, the Republicans are effectively now saying uh, through the Attorney General, William Barr, put out a, a summary of the, of the uh, yeah. report, effectively saying that there was a case closed. Um, the President is saying he's exonerated. Um, some Democrats think it's time to move on. Would you, is it time to move on from this, in your opinion? Uh, no. <laughs> um, uh, as, as you and your listeners could probably tell, I'm, I'm fairly committed to this topic. No, I think it's um, I, I think it's exact opposite. I think um, the last few months of, of uh, inaction on the Democratic side of the House, uh, the stonewalling from the White House, um, have been a real disservice. I think there's a real need to act. I think what's broadly happened here is to step back for a minute. You know, the last two years, Democrats were sort of in a kind of a tough spot, actually. Um, you know, they were 
you know, wanting to sort of let the process play out and not prejudge an ongoing criminal investigation. Um, now, Donald Trump was not doing that. Donald Trump was working arrests. Donald Trump was basically running, you know, for the last two years, a campaign against being impeached. He was saying, trying to tell the American people, there's nothing there. This is all a hoax. No collusion, no collusion, no collusion. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And so he's had a very clear message. Well, Democrats' message has been, we're basically protect the Mueller investigation, wait for Mueller, which isn't really uh, a clear message. And and I think that's continued after the Mueller report, where what you now have is, uh, I think, a Democratic Party that wasn't prepared for the Mueller report to be as damaging as it was. And so partly because of that, they've uh, also had to view this through a more political lens of, is this a smart political step to move forward with impeachment? Because perhaps if we move forward on impeachment, then Donald Trump will be able to say that we're just obsessed with um, impeaching him and the public will view us as sort of not really focused on their interests, but focused on just sort of getting at Donald Trump. Uh, I don't really view it that way. I think that what this is, that impeachment is bad, that being impeached is bad. It's not something anyone wants. It's a fairly simple. And that if the Democrats in the House move forward on impeachment, that will send a real signal to the public that Donald Trump's actions have been unacceptable. Um, now, I think they're walking in, you know, there's all these other competing uh, domestic political issues as well. But I think that's the basic thrust here is that it is important for House Democrats to hold Donald Trump accountable uh, for the action that's outlined in the Mueller report, because failure to do so, I think, essentially means that what the Mueller report then will become is sort of, a you know, that's sort of a new guide. It's a new precedent for how you can actually collude with the Foreign Intelligence Service uh, in running a political campaign and get away with it. And I think that's a terrible precedent to set, especially heading into a 2020 election cycle. So what about the fact, so just to, I mean, not to make the arguments for the House Democrats, because I certainly you're more plugged into the Democratic Party than I could ever hope to be. But, you know, the argument seems to be, yes, uh, uh, the House could impeach uh, Donald Trump now that there's a majority since the midterms. Um, the, then the Republican Senate um, would likely exonerate, given the way that you require a, a supermajority um, to, to, to remove a president in the Senate to find him guilty of uh, high crimes and misdemeanors. So yeah. is, is that a relevant point? Do you think that's relevant? And, and would that make the case for exoneration greater? So I know I think I think that's a very relevant point. Um, and that's sort of the argument that that House Democrats are making, saying this is sort of a symbolic exercise. Here's the thing, is that every piece of legislation that Democrats in the House are passing as well is a symbolic exercise because there is this roadblock called Mitch McConnell, um, who runs this, the Senate and is the Republican leader and is not going to pass any legislation that goes forward. And that actually impeaching this, there, I, my counter argument would be, look, Republicans in the Senate have been have been like frightened turtles over the last two years. They haven't wanted to talk about this. It has been something that they're very glad not to have to be confronted with. And the problem, I think, for the problem uh, that I think if Democrats were to move forward with and, and actually impeach and then move it forward to the Senate and there would be a trial in the Senate, that hasn't that, you know, that has happened very rarely in American history. You know, Bill Clinton, it happened uh, in 1999. Uh, Richard Nixon, we never got to that point because he resigned. And then it happened in 1866, I believe, with Andrew Johnson uh, after after Abraham Lincoln. So this is not this would send, I think, a big signal to the country. It would be treated very seriously in the press. And then you'd be forcing Republicans in the Senate to stand up and to defend the actions and conduct that's outlined in in the Mueller report. And I think where it makes sense for me to do this is I think you'll actually get some Republicans to join forces with Democrats. Now, I don't think you're going to get the two-thirds majority to remove Donald Trump, but I think you could see a real strong bipartisan rebuke. And that will also be very useful for a, a candidate, a Democratic candidate opposing Donald Trump in 2020 that can then run on the argument that Donald Trump, Donald, Donald Trump is in fact uh, a, a criminal and should be going to jail. 
that strikes me as a strong argument to make in 2020. And, for, and if you get to 2020 and it doesn't pull well, you can always just run on other issues. But to me, the conduct outlined in the Mueller report just cannot stand. And I think the political calculation here, the political cal- machinations don't make a lot of sense to me, number one. But number two, even if they did, I think there's a duty on the part of members that took an oath to uphold our Constitution to to act. Now, we're not a parliamentary system. We only have one way to remove a leader, uh, and that is through the impeachment process. And the impeachment process... As, so, as an Australian, mate, I should probably say that removing leaders um, is not without its <laughs> problems, but uh, sorry not to cut you off. I, 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 that, that, is, that is a good flag. On the other hand, not removing leaders that are hugely problematic um, and having to sit sit out and wait for four years uh, is also a problem. And, you know, our, the designers of our constitution along, you know, back in, you know, 1770s, 1780s, put this in there for a reason. And they put it in there for a guy like Donald Trump, who has basically used corrupt means to gain the office that has committed high, tri- high crimes and misdemeanors while in office in the obstruction of justice. So if you're not going to use it now, then when? And I think this, I think not acting just sets an incredibly terrible precedent um, for the future of our democracy. And so you, you talked about Watergate. I mean, the Clinton comparison, I think, I mean, it's an interesting one given when you consider the, the, the relative um, uh, conduct um, is, you know, I think it speaks for itself. But the Watergate one's more yeah. instructive because that was a Republican president um, in the end who, whilst not impeached, was removed because the Republican Senate abandoned him or the Republican senators. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any confidence that that's the case, given where the Republican Party is at now? And is it not you know, relevant political calculus? I mean, you've talked about some maybe coming over, but is that enough, really, in, in the... Yeah. So, you know, so the Nixon example, I think, is, is one that we just, you know, in America has not been totally internalized. It's sort of viewed through this kind of, um, uh, you know, the All the President's Men movie with Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, where, aha, you know, Woodward and Bernstein got it. And then Nixon, you know, uh, resigned, you know, fairly quickly. But it was a two-year process. It was very similar. It was this sort of slow burn of information that came out. And it wasn't until the very end that uh, Nixon, that political support for Nixon collapsed. Nixon's approval ratings had gone down um, throughout the process, and Watergate helped push them down. But Republicans actually stood by his side up until the very end. And when and suddenly the dam broke, and it broke completely. And Nixon saw that there was no future. And so I think the pro, I think here's what I would tell de- Democrats in uh, the modern age: is that you don't know unless you try. You don't know unless you push forward. And why was why did Nixon's support collapse? Because House Democrats were moving forward with an impeachment inquiry. It was the impeachment inquiry which then elicited new information, got more information out there. The tape broke. But it was that that was the forcing function that put pressure on Republicans to justify it. And the political results for the Democratic Party in the 1974 election, it was the biggest wave election, I think, in modern history. Democrats won by 17 percent. They had two-thirds majority in the House. And then the only Democrat to win in the period between 1968 and 1992 was Jimmy Carter in 1976. And why did he win? Partly on this backlash, this anti-Watergate backlash. And so I think if I were Democrats, I would look at that example as sort of the high end, right? Nixon resigning essentially confirmed everything that everyone was saying about him. And then you'd look at the 98, 99 uh, uh, Clinton scandal. And what happened in 98 was Republicans lost five seats in the House. This wasn't this huge backlash against Republicans for pushing it, um, for pushing impeachment. And then George W. Bush won in 2000 based off of uh, basically restoring honor and integrity back to the, to the White House. He sort of ran against Bill Clinton's uh, 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 image. Now, if the Clinton case is sort of, you know, the, the backlash example of pursuing an unjustified impeachment process, and it only doesn't, you know, the backlash is, is so is that minimal, losing five seats, 
having George W. Bush sneak through in, in a controversial election in 2000. Okay. And then you look at the 1974, and if that's the high end, where we are, at the very least with the Mueller investigation, while I think it's a bigger scandal than Watergate, the political dynamics are different. We're much more in the Watergate space than we are in uh, the Clinton space. And I think if Democrats pushed this and pursued it and actually um, made this a big political issue, um, I think it would bear political fruit for them. But they're very reticent to do so. Um, and I think there's a number of reasons for that that go beyond there's sort of a larger psych- psychology here. Democrats don't like to run on scandal. While the Republican Party, you know, sort of their whole uh, what drives them when they run political campaigns is the search for political scandal, for Clinton emails, for some sort of, you know, Obama-ish scandal that they could make a big deal out of. And the Democrats like to talk about policy and are very wonky, in some ways lovable and sort of boring in that sense. But uh, and that's, I think, really hurting them here. Now, it's an interesting point. We, uh, the progressives don't tend to dial up the outrage on those types of things, like to make it about the issues. We're often outraged about the issues, but yeah, it's, it's a really valid point. The 2020 election, um, is anyone talking about this to your mind? We've had the debates. Do you think this is getting enough airtime? Because I mean, there's been significantly a pivot to perhaps the issues, health, education, et cetera. Do you think that this is getting enough airtime or are the candidates to your mind waiting to see what the House does and see if there's a tailwind there? Well, so actually the Democratic political candidates have have led on this. I think Elizabeth Warren in particular was the first major uh, political figure to come out in favor of impeachment. She was then followed by a number of other Democratic presidential candidates. And most of the top tier candidates have all come out calling for Donald Trump to be impeached and for the House to move to to an impeachment inquiry. Um, so, So I think they've actually led. The, the debates that occurred, I was sort of surprised that there weren't more questions related to impeachment. There was one on the first night, not on the second, um, in that this hasn't played a bigger role in the questioning. Um, and some of that is because, you know, it's sort of a uh, a lot of the folks sort of agree internally. But I am a little surprised it's not hasn't been a bigger issue. I think it's partly it's been now a few months since the Mueller report has dropped. Um it shows that how if you don't react and if there's no outrage, if you know you can, the outrage will sort of decline over time. People's attention spans are short, particularly uh, with Donald Trump in the White House, and there's a scandal of sort of every 15 minutes. Um, but you know we're about to have a big thing happen in a couple of weeks where Robert Mueller is going to testify uh, uh, or scheduled to testify, and I think that's going to put this back into the news. I think it's put more pressure on uh, House Democrats. And what we've been seeing is this trickle of more and more House Democrats are coming out for impeachment. So the numbers are sort of ticking up. And I think the big question is, you know, August is sort of this mythical month, actually, in American politics, where there's no news, you know, in boring eras like the 1990s, August will be dominated by news of shark attacks and other things. but it's also a month that because when there's it's a limited news cycle, there's not much happening, that one issue can sort of dominate. And perhaps the one issue to dominate might be Russia. And I think that's one of the big, the Russian investigation. Um, in, you know, in 2009, it was the Obama, tea, the Tea Party movement sort of developed then. Um, in 20, in two years ago, it was Charlottesville. It was Donald Trump's racism sort of dominated. So we'll see what sort of drives the news in August. And if it drives the news, if this investigation drives the news, I think you could see House members coming back from that long recess, having been you know home speaking to their constituents and say, okay, I, you know, I can't look my constituents in the eye and make uh, and, and, and not move forward on this. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we'll see. And you're right. I mean, I think Mueller testifying will be interesting because in his report, as I understand it, he's effectively said, look, it's, you can't indict a sitting president. And the mechanism for that, as you sort of pointed out, is, is an impeachment through the constitution. So that case, uh, might, might sort of come out in that evidence as well. So look, we've talked a lot about us, um, there are obviously other democracies in the world and, and, and quite yeah. a bit of interference, particularly in the European context. Um, yeah, what, what sort of work are you doing looking at the level of Russian interference or foreign interference in the European elections or particularly in the Brexit election? And you know, how concerning is that 
given that you talked about driving into those schisms that exist within societies? Uh, so been been doing a significant amount of work looking into those. I think, um, you know, I think one of the things that when we think about, at least in the Russian case and Russian interference, is that, you know, they look to exploit the gaps that our domestic politics make available to them. In the United States, there's lots of gaps in terms of our of the financing of campaigns, of money, of uh, of, uh, and the Russians were able to identify those gaps. Um, I think in the Brexit case, for example, we see a lot of the same similarities. A lot of the things happening in the United States were happening in the UK. I think one of the things that's most troubling about Brexit is that while we've had this sort of two-year-long investigation and discussion and focus in it, uh, on Russian interference that has resulted in the Mueller report. And the one thing the United States can firmly say is we know Russia interfered in the 2016 election. The one thing that you still cannot say about Brexit, or at least that is not sort of accepted in UK politics, I think you can say it, but it's not accepted as conventional wisdom in UK politics, is that Russia interfered in the Brexit referendum. And to me, there's very little doubt that that occurred. And you just have to look at the way Aaron Banks, who is the main fund uh, uh, financier of one of the Leave, the Leave.eu campaigns, what we see is exactly the same thing that was happening with Donald Trump, almost at exactly the same time, that Donald Trump was being offered this Trump Tower in Moscow, this too-good-to-be-true business deal. And at the same time, he was then running for office, in which it sort of, and Donald Trump was using his pro-Russian statements throughout the campaign as a way to sort of advance this business deal. It involved working with a Russian bank, involved uh, uh, coordinating with the Kremlin. And we see the same thing with Aaron Banks, where essentially he's being offered this too-good-to-be-true deal to take to run the merger of these gold mines in Russia, something that would sort of be well beyond his depths. Um, It's incredibly lucrative. Uh, He's having meetings with the UK and the Russian ambassador within the UK. He's in talks with a Russian bank. Um, And so you see very similar, uh, a lot of similarities. You also see, you know, the Russian online social media arm, uh, the Internet Research Agency, didn't just start uh, operating, you know, in 2016. It started years before that. And and Brexit would be something that the Russians would have definitely worked to promote. And there's a lot of uh, uh, digital um, uh, computer scientists that have looked at the Brexit referendum and have seen the same sorts of social media activity uh, in the UK during that period that we saw in the United States. But the UK has not conducted a similar sorts of investigation. When they have, when the parliament did, it found found a lot of there there. It referred Aaron Banks to the National Crime Agency, the FBI equivalent, and it raised a lot of questions about some of the digital campaigns, one being this uh, one uh, digital companies, Cambridge Analytica, who worked on the Trump campaign, who is now out of business because of the practices that it used. And so I think that is a particular uh, uh, worrying case at the lack of actual energy and resolve on behalf of British authorities to actually protect their politics from Russian interference. And, you know, it would be a significant win for Vladimir Putin and Russia to to split apart the EU, right? So, I mean, that's sort of a foreign policy aim of the Russian government. Yeah, I think I think that's I think particularly one of the things that occurred I think after 2014 is pre-2014, so pre the Ukraine crisis. Uh, the EU was sort of seen, I think, in Russia as sort of a second-tier thing. NATO was the major focus. But what the Ukraine, uh, you know, the Maidan revolution was about, which then resulted in the collapse of the sort of pro-Russian, pro-Kremlin government of Viktor Yanukovych, it was about whether Ukraine was going to have an economic agreement with the EU, um, and Russia was offering an economic agreement with the, with Russia, the Eurasian Union, as they described it. And Yanukovych chose to go with Russia uh, it led to mass protests in the streets, which then an occupation of Maidan Square, which lasted for months. And so the, here was a revolution started essentially by EU bureaucrats not realizing basically how far they were going in offering an association agreement with EU. And the power of the EU that the that you know countries like Georgia and Ukraine wanted to be part 
of the European Union. They looked at countries like Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Slovakia, their neighbors that were part of the EU and said, we want that. And so I think after 2014, you see a particular Russian focus on how do we undermine the European Union? One of the ways you cultivate and you build up and amplify the far right leaders of, of, of Europe and seek exits, Brexit, uh, you support not just, and so Brexit would totally be in Russian interests, but then you also see it in France with Marie Le Pen, which is probably a, a much clearer example where Marie Le Pen's National Front Party was funded by the, uh, a Russian, a Czech Russian bank. They got around 10 million euros uh, to operate. Uh, there was lots of online social media support for Marie Le Pen's campaign and attacks against Emmanuel Macron in the 2017 election. And then, of course, what did the Russians do? They also hacked Macron's campaign and released the emails, a la the same thing we saw in 2016. And Marie Le Pen was running on sort of an anti-EU, anti-NATO, uh, sort of pro-Russian platform. And we're seeing it now in Italy with the, uh, the Matteo Savini um, uh, government, where he's potentially a recipient of, of millions of dollars from Russia, or at least his party is. Um, and so the playbook is very straightforward. It's the idea that people, you can corrupt politicians. And so why not corrupt democratic politicians, especially those on the far right, who in fact seem more corruptible than those on the left, uh, and seek to call cultivate them and amplify them and try to promote their candidacies. Um, and it's been been particularly effective. And and I think it's one, one thing that I think we're seeing in Europe, one positive, is that the there's been a strong backlash, actually, against Brexit. And so the EU seems in some ways more solid than it was, I think, a, a few years ago in 2016. Uh one of the things you sort of talked about, and I think it's relevant to basically all the, the these issues that we're having um, with, with, with foreign um, interference, is this question of openness versus closed systems. And, you know, up until now, the theory has been that openness wins, liberalism wins, markets tend to win, democracy wins. As you said, they're driving, you know, they, you know foreign interference can't create schisms in society. They're already pre-existing. But the openness and messiness of democracy and the openness of the media, the openness of social media in particular, seems to be now being a tool used against um, against liberal democracies in the West in, and Europe and other parts of the world. And so, how you know, how do democracies guard against that that openness without losing the sense of self? No, it's it's a great question. I think it's sort of in some ways the question of our age. Now, I think. Step one is to have a degree of confidence in the in uh, the success of open systems. Um, there, I think, in some ways, they're more closed systems are more afraid of us than we should be of them. In terms of, you know, there's a reason why Vladimir Putin, in particular, is striking back at the West is because he is incredibly nervous of a color revolution, of a liberal uprising happening within Russia. Why would that happen? Is because Russian citizens decide we want, they want to have more of a democratic society. They want to be more open, more like us. And so Putin needs to make, and I think China as well, uh, democratic societies seem unattractive. Um, and so, so I think it, it is, it's, it's one where I think we need to have a degree of confidence. The second thing is I think we need to be aware of this challenge, of this threat, of the fact that we've done all this business. You know, we've viewed yeah, – we, you know, we need to sort of, I think, pivot, reassess that after the 1990s, we assumed that every – that if we opened our economies and opened our societies to autocratic governments, it would change them. Uh, and it wouldn't change us. And to a degree, we are right. It has changed autocratic societies, but it hasn't changed them to the degree we thought it would. Uh, and this sort of glide path to democratization, I think uh, we have to sort of reassess. And in some ways, it's also changed us. And so it doesn't mean that we need to close off from autocratic societies, but I think it needs we need to be more guarded. We need to uh, have... Um, real uh, focus on transparency within our democratic politics, really focus on our rules and legislation, foreign interference, our, our foreign registration, other areas where 
how do we sort of make sure that, yes, we can have foreigners here in our society, but they can't sort of, uh, you know, sort of covertly influence our politics. So that remains, I think, a, a critical challenge. I think the other larger aspect is that it means that we need to go back and sort of look at our democratic allies and, and partners and value them much more and work together much more closely, look to do, um, look to have our, our economies of democratic societies linked together more closely, as opposed to having it be just generally open, we should focus on, 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 on like-minded partners on democracies. And so I think that's sort of, it's both a broader challenge and also um, uh, protecting ourselves uh, in our political systems. And the third component is that I think we do need to go on offense a bit more, that there does need to be a bit more of, uh, of uh, pushing um, a public diplomacy, of competing more with autocratic states, particularly in areas like the Balkans and in areas in Asia and in Africa, where authoritarian countries are moving in, offering lots of resources, help working to corrupt those countries and turn them away from liberal democracy, and we need to sort of counter that. And, I mean, one of the other areas, I think, and we've sort of talked a lot about safeguarding systems and, and making sure that the, 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 the institutions themselves are safe, but I think one of the areas that we need to address as societies, I mean, these schisms that you're seeing um, between rural and urban, um, between yeah. educated and uneducated, and between you know, the economic uplift that people are experiencing or not experiencing, these are relatively present in most... Um, uh, advanced uh, economies and advanced democratic societies, and I think there's probably a need for us to address those schisms themselves. You know, we can we can we can stop them being exploited, but the best way to stop them being exploited is to uh, probably you know try to remove them as best we can. I'm sure you'd probably agree with yeah, that. Yeah, I no, I think that's I, I think that's dead on, and I think one of the ways that foreign interference works is that it can tap into discontented populations within society, and it's particularly problematic when a large portion of your democratic population is extremely discontent. And a lot of the discontent is over, um, you know, the different economic inequalities, economic setbacks that have occurred uh, between um, divergence between urban and rural uh, areas, I think is particularly um, something we see very strongly here in the United States. We used to talk about red states, blue states, but now it's really, you know, blue cities, red country, and it, it, the, the, the dynamic is, is very clear. And so part of that is because in part of the resentment of globalization that we're seeing, resentment of liberalism, is that you, you know, from rural areas where economic growth in the United States has, has flatlined over the last 20 years, and in, in particular, uh, we're particularly hard hit by the Great Recession, Cities like Washington, D.C. have thrived, actually, in the last 20 years and have become you know, super expensive, have become plugged into the global, uh, the global economy, to the global uh, intellectual um, uh, uh, architecture, uh, the hub of, of ideas that are flowing around the world. And I think there's a, a, you know, a sort of a resentment of that where in uh, a, a willingness on the part of large parts of the population to vote for anyone that will that will sort of change the system, that will break the system. And so one, I think, immediate remedy for addressing foreign interference, and it's complicated, but is to try to address that broader discontent. And if your public is not as discontent about the current set situation, then you're going to, you know, then democratic societies will thrive. You create less space for foreign interference, um, and so I think that is a major focus. Should be a major focus of policymakers. I think one good thing we're seeing here in the democratic political discussion is a lot of focus on that uh, in a way that hasn't actually occurred uh, in sort of modern modern memory. I completely agree. I mean, democracy needs to deliver. Um, it's not purely just a, a, a voting process in of itself. Yeah. It needs to deliver for people. If it delivers for people, then it, the rest sort of takes care of itself. The one thing I was sort of curious to take you on, you know, we talked a lot about Russia. Um, there's been an enormous focus from the administration on the question of China um, and, the, you know, and the, the use of Huawei uh, potentially um, within, uh, you know, uh, liberal democracies and the concerns about its links to the Chinese Communist Party and whether or not it's an independent company. In Australia, it's been banned from building the 5G network. Do you see 
um, perhaps is China the real main game when it comes to interference? We talk about it a lot in Australia, but it's tended to dominate the discourse a little bit in the US. But from a kind of public policy point of view, how do you see the threat posed by the you know the use of Huawei and the and the use of Chinese um, foreign interference? So I think it's a really significant threat, right? I think it's one where you know this is what you know sometimes uh, you know uh, you know the Trump administration isn't wrong. Um, and the problem is that we're used to them just being wrong all the time, that when they're right, it becomes a little bit uh, – it, it, it can fall on deaf ears. But I think this is super problematic because if you control the sort of broader telecommunications architecture of a democratic society and that's being controlled by an autocratic government that uh, has its own ma- you know, political designs and intentions, um, I think that it's it's – the potential for abuse is huge. Now we've worried in the past about Russians hacking into, you know, the communications uh, links of, of sea cables under the sea, of satellites, of, of intercepting all sorts of communication. And so, if you basically allow China to sort of control your your information technology backbone structure, um, I think you're potentially exposing yourself not just from uh, 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 potential foreign interference, potential China's potential ability to observe and monitor uh, Australian society or whatever society they're in, but in a national security contingency, in an event where there's a conflict or something were to happen, um, then your infrastructure, you're already sort of compromised uh, in how how to combat um that, that threat and challenge. And so I think one of the things for countries to assess, especially if you're Australia, is what is the potential contingency like? You know, who, what side would you want to be on? And I hope that would be, you know, I think as we see this, uh, the new sort of geopolitics of the day, it's clear that the U.S. and China are, I think hopefully will always avoid conflict, but they're going to be two competitors. And I think the alliance between the U.S. and Australia, um, and I saw this at the end of the Obama administration, uh, has sadly actually come to supplant, I think, the special relationship with the U.K. and its importance. Uh, that's partly because the U.K.'s own uh, <laughs> own actions of austerity, of Brexit, um, but it's also because of Austra- Australia's now pivotal role in a pivotal region and also Australia's partnership throughout the years with the United States. And I think part of that is is – uh, is our democratic uh, values that are so closely aligned. We speak the same language. We have uh, a similar forms of government for democracies. Um, and I hope and I think that that is something. So if you know Australia, when it's making a geopolitical decision here, sees that as the trend line uh, to be with the United States uh, or to make a choice, I don't think China is the right bet. Um, now, it's hard to make that case when we have Donald Trump in the White House, someone who um, I think is is not quite an attractive figure and makes America, I think, embarrasses the country a lot. But we are a democracy. We will have an election next year. Um, and hopefully, uh, at least from my perspective, that um, that will pivot. But I think that uh, I, I think having a Chinese company control something so vital is something to really uh, to be wary of. Well, you've you've ended on an uplifting message there, and um, you know, as I uh, my, one of my famous clunky uh, sort of segues, that you managed to bring it back to the Australian American Alliance. So I, I can pivot out of that to say, um, uh, you know, the last question I asked every guest and um, is, you know, uh, foreign guests have to who are the three Australians that you might reluctantly, you know, perhaps there's not enough of us, but that you would bring to a barbecue at Max Bergen's place. Um, and I, I should give you up the fact that uh, you were desperately Googling famous Australians. So I'm curious to see who you came up with in the top three Google searches. No, I, I, the problem is I got distracted and wasn't able to really go through it. I think uh, – so famous Australians. Well, I well, I mean I think I would have to have uh, a dinner with the Australian and former Australian ambassador in the UK, uh, uh, Ambassador Dower, um, who – uh, met with George Papadopoulos, so I think that that's a no-brainer given uh, given my uh, uh, role. Um, I, I would say that I, I'm sort of friends with another Australian ambassador 
um, who used to be posted here in the United States, who would uh, who would also get me drunk quite quite frequently. Uh, but I won't say his name because I don't want to get him in trouble. Um, but the, well, so the the famous Australian uh, NBA player Bogarts uh, would be would be one. Um, and then oh, I, I Tim Cahill of 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 soccer fame, soccer roof fame, also played for the New York Red Bulls, who is not my team. I'm a DC United supporter, but uh, Tim Cahill seems like a great guy. So I think that's that's three. That's that's uh... that counts. So Alexander Downer, um, Tim Cahill, and uh, Chris Bogut, and uh, and a. a, a not unnamed ambassador who will be bringing the booze, I assume. So that sounds like yeah. that sounds like a good barbecue. Yeah. This is oftentimes, you know, Americans are, are bad at dissecting Australian accents, uh, oftentimes from our movie stars, where I'll be like, that person's not American or that person's not British. So, you know, I I know there's more Australians among us that uh, that should be should be brought to this dinner party. Well, there's a whole heap of Australians that are actually New Zealanders that we claim, like Russell Crowe. So, um, you know, there's there's a whole system in place that we, if you're famous, you become Australian. If you're notorious, you become a Kiwi, right? So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, look, thank you so much for joining the show, Max. Um, it's been a pleasure, and thank you for your time. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.